Grieg Hall or the listening room of Grieg Hall. I was about to say in the Hall of the Mountain King. You can't uh, really get more Norwegian than Grieg Hall, Grieg Place. I'm with Mary Miller, director of Bergen National Opera, and Andrew Litton, music director of the Bergen Philharmonic Orchestra, the venerable Bergen Philharmonic Orchestra. Mary, if I might turn to you first... Bergen National Opera founded in 2005, and you took the helm in 2010, I believe. Now, no one should need an excuse to found an opera company anywhere, but given that you have a long-established national opera company in, in Oslo, I wondered what were the objectives here in Bergen? Bergen has a somewhat checkered history in terms of opera. There has been for a long time an opera society here. There then was an organisation here which grew out of the orchestra as a contemporary music ensemble, which started to do opera, specifically new opera. Out of that grew a company called Des Nue Opera, the new opera. And at which point I think the ministry in Oslo said, let's rationalise opera in Bergen, get the orchestra involved formally, the theatre involved formally, the festival involved formally, and found a company here that Mm. actually is concentrated on doing Mm. opera, not just new opera, but opera. It became very clear that we had to give it a a sense of place, and hence Bergen National Opera. Um, The purpose of the company has been very much on developing young Nordic artists, on developing, not just artists actually, developing creative teams. Every production, we're project-based. We don't have an ensemble here. Mm. In discussion with the orchestra, um, we create teams which bring together young Nordic artists and very high-level international artists. don't have a, a resident company, but you do have a resident orchestra. We most certainly um, do. Um, the Bergen Philharmonic. Andrew, um, you've worked a great deal in opera houses throughout the world. Um, I personally will, won't forget your Porgy and Bess at Covent Garden, uh, or indeed Billy Bard at English National Opera. Those were two things that really made a big impression on me. How important has it been for the development of the orchestra to have an operatic outlet? It's huge, and I actually have to say I go back a little further in the story than you realize, because I started here as chief conductor, music director, in 2003, but I was hired in 2001, and so for two years I was saying, what about an opera company? What about an opera company? Because I knew full well by getting to know Bergen that there was an infrastructure for, you know, there, there was the possibility to create this company without very much work, but... Everybody's got long toes and, and, and turf that they're proud of. And it really took a little bit of brash Americanness, I think, if I can proudly say, to get everybody to talk to each other. So it was then that the ministry in Oslo took notice. Of course, I, I had a, a strong desire to see us uh, having a professional opera company in this town. But it's the best and fastest way to build a great orchestra. All the mm. finest orchestras mm. in the world play opera. Yeah. And, um, and, and it really has changed the way this orchestra, I can proudly say after being here 10 years as a music director, it has changed the way they listen. Well, that's the fundamental challenge as a conductor, because you're always saying, no, listen, listen to each other. You know, it's chamber music. Well, when you have to follow a singer around, yeah. a singer who may be going astray, you know, that's, that really builds a flexibility and a, and a kind of um, ensemble practice that I 
very much believe and, it, and I think and, it really improves orchestra. And phrasal uh, as well, you know, when in doubt, sing it. develop a company without a, a core of homegrown singers and how do you source your artists obviously the world's your oyster Mary Andrew um, I think it's a fantastic advantage for us at the moment um, we have a lot of audiences different audiences here and we really have to pay attention to that we just did the would you believe the Norwegian premiere of Cunning Little Vixen the opera is young in Norway <laughs> at the moment it's extremely important for us to be continually looking outwards to bring fresh talent into Norway and to show that talent to and expand the range of the young artists that we work with here. I think it's a massive advantage for us. It gives us a unique flexibility as a company for us not to have a sort of roster of people mm. who, you know, we have a, a duty to employ. Now, that's not to say that there aren't people that we do, of course, that we employ regularly. But I think flexibility for us at the moment in building this company and building its identity is absolutely critical. Mm. There have been huge strides in the development of operas, theatre, since I was a boy. But it's always been an inexact science, marrying the right directors to the right mm. projects. And I presume that's part of the stimulating challenge of putting... And also you're working in a hall which has to be converted into a theatre. I mean, does that add... It is stress to the exercise. It adds, <laughs> adds to the budget, shall we say. <laughs> yeah. um, yes, of course, it adds stress, and we have to work with directors who can accommodate that. But I think, you know, that's part of the ex very exciting thing we can do. I mean, I am passionate that opera must be theatre. We have all sat through countless productions with utterly wonderful singers, but unless you're telling that story, unless you have that physical sense of theatre, for me, opera isn't really valid. So we are constantly exploring how we can you know bring together these marriages where we can bring this fantastic direction and fantastic design and video and visual world into what we do we come back to flexibility we're very lucky to be able to do it Fidelio is your big autumn production it's timed as an upbeat if you like to the 200th anniversary of Norway as an independent country with its own constitution now I know Andrew this is a piece very close to your heart and um, a cry for universal freedom from the man whose ninth symphony came to symbolise universal right. brotherhood why is it special to you because it has uh, it's a very challenging piece there are all kinds of very particular challenges in both performing it and staging it First of all, Beethoven's my favorite composer, so you can imagine what it's like for me where we only have basically the one opera, you know, or one and a half if you consider how much he actually revised it. So to have this genius put his touch on um, this art form is, of course, very special to me. But what I love is the story is completely universal. It is completely going on to this day. Somewhere in the world, there are political prisoners unjustly held. And this selfless determination of this woman to find her husband and that kind of love is so moving and so 
topical today. I mean, that's what I think all the great stories that have ever been told are ones that can be transported to any time because they're timeless. Because it's also quite a, it's a story about marriage as well. It's, yeah. it's got a domestic core to it, which makes it more immediate for an audience, I think, because everybody can relate to that. Yeah, well, how much would you do for your partner? Yes, you know? I mean, exactly. this really is. Exactly. And, and but the, what's so fabulous is, and all my favorite operas have to do where the orchestra is a protagonist or the orchestra tells a story. Beethoven uses the orchestra in his usually incre- his usual incredibly effective way to underline the drama at every twist and turn. And Beethoven, more than than many of the composers that preceded and followed, was obsessed with keys and key relationships. And and this opera is a study in the importance of of key relationships. And of course, having written the Fifth Symphony, which is all about triumph in C major, um, how logical is it that the, the final minutes of this opera are triumph in C major? It's just the number of innovative details in the orchestration is enough to fill a treatise. You know, it's uh, starting with the fact that it's the very first time in history that the timpani were not tuned in tonic dominance, but in, in the beginning of Act Two to create absolutely in two drum strokes the the desperation and darkness and and loneliness of this lowest dungeon in this prison it's a phenomenal touch and you know only somebody who obviously woke up one morning and said wow what if we tried this just been spending a lot of time on Rite of Spring, it just having been the centenary. And, you know, it's it's so interesting when you look at these pillars and what the, uh, it's Beethoven and Stravinsky, and what they achieved single-handedly, but, you know, just, just by chain, changing the history of, the, of everything that would follow. It's, it's astonishing. And Fidelio has many of these elements. Listen, it was a troubled birth. Um, you know, he revised it several times. The fact that we have four overtures to one opera is, I'm sure, perhaps the <laughs> best way to, to summarize the, the difficulties of the birthing process that Beethoven had with this piece. But what's so extraordinary is... Um, for those of us that study Beethoven and, and love him so much, is to look at the original piece, Leonora, as it was uh, the working title was, and to see how a genius self-edits, how a genius corrects things. I've had the great opportunity in my 32-year career to conduct many world premieres, and I have to say, without sounding too disrespectful, the number of times when I've thought, gee, if only there were a few cuts in this piece. Beethoven so cleverly cut out vast stretches of music, but sometimes, even more fascinatingly, if he'd had an eight-bar phrase in the original version, it became a a six-and-a-half-bar phrase in the new version. He wouldn't cut out a whole measure. It would be a measure and a half, Mm. or half a measure. Mm. And it just completely tightens up the line suddenly and the phrase, and you go, oh, gosh, you know, of course it's better. You know, and to be that much of a genius and self-critical... Yes. To see that, you know, is is truly enlightening and, and I think provides one of the greatest studies into Beethoven's mind that we have. It, there, There is a school of thought which says that he wrote awkwardly for the voice and I've had a, it's not my view, I, I've had a furious argument once with, with, with a very distinguished pianist who said, no, 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 it's not 
vocally, I said, well, there are challenges, certainly. Abscheulicher from yeah. the soprano is a huge challenge, and, and so is the Florestan aria in the last act. What is I, I your view he, of... I, I think he had it in for the soprano and the tenor, actually. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a bit opposite. Of looking at well, it. look at the Ninth Symphony. I mean, who yeah. are the ones that are left up to hang, hang and dry? Hang and dry. <laughs> the, the, you know, the ensemble writing is miraculous. Yes. And of course there are... You know, written in desperation, so to speak, in in those in the areas you know that we've just been talking about. But nevertheless, I I think it comes back to this issue that it's not an what one might call a normal relationship between the human voice and the orchestra. You know, mm. the orchestra, everybody is a voice, mm. and you know perhaps very demanding things are asked of the orchestra in in a different kind of way, but also of the singers, and I think it is this giant piece of chamber music that happens to have voices that in it. In that soprano aria, for example, there is this huge contrast between the heroism of the aria and the hopefulness of the aria, and that quiet and section with the, yeah. with the solo horn. And, and let's, not, yeah, let's not forget the poor three horn players that are sweating bullets up to that moment in the show. Because Beethoven was hearing impaired, certainly at the time of writing this piece, and totally deaf by the time he wrote the ninth, he he actually couldn't really hear what he was making these human voices do. So what he was writing was all in his head, and of course his heart, but... I think he would have been more realistic about how he treated the voice had he really heard what the effort, the huge, the huge technical challenges he was actually making on them. He was thinking of the voice as another instrument, which on some level it is, of course, but it's, it's, that's cart before the horse syndrome, because don't forget instruments came after we started singing in our caves, we made instruments to accompany ourselves. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's where Beethoven perhaps got it slightly wrong, or certainly created challenges for people even up to this day. I mean, it's still a 21st century challenge to find a great cast for this piece. And yet you suddenly find a moment like the wonderful quartet Mir is so wunderbar, where he takes us out of this domestic situation into some heavenly plane. It's like an out-of-body experience, that quartet, isn't it? I always think of of Mahler Ford. Mahler Ford, so uh, yes. Well, Mahler, of course, being having <laughs> conducted many, many performances <laughs> of Medelia, obviously very influenced. And um, I mean, let's not forget, and he also quotes Aida in the Fourth Symphony. I think his opera days were really playing not a little bit of havoc with his creative juices, but perhaps inspiring him as well. You know, so um, the way I call it, you know, time stands still, the beginning of that quartet, when the orchestra really starts. And Mahler creates the same exact effect at the beginning of the slow movement in the Fourth Symphony. It's extraordinary. And whatever you're feeling, whatever you're doing, you have to stop. that sets that up first and then the singers come in in a very halting way 
it's the difficulty of self thought when you're not sure what the future holds. And 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 that's I think a lovely, that's lovely way of putting it. And I, and I, I just here again is this genius who within seconds has brought us and transported us into this incredible world. And you know we're talking to have this kind of knowledge of how to handle an orchestra and the human voice and our sense of drama 200 years ago plus is extraordinary. Mary, this is, there's a very real danger with this piece um, of it being hijacked for <laughs> political ends and we've seen numerous instances of the opera being treated in that way. Now, your director is Lithuanian, Oskaras uh, Korsanovas, have you discussed with him yet his vision for the piece? I know you have a very interesting concept for the actual staging and, and involvement of the orchestra. I wanted Oscars to direct this piece because, in my view, of his generation of directors, and he's in his early 40s, he's the person for me who has the most extraordinary insight into what I would call kind of classic texts. He is not a director who is going to have you know naked tenors hanging from light bulbs or... Or to have a uh, kind that's of... That's it, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> just joking. <laughs> just talking about the tenors, Andrew. <laughs> um, he has, you know, absolute respect for the music. I mean, my problem always with the opera, if one could be said to have any problem, is the first act. How do you make the first act, which is a somewhat stilted domestic scene mm. and an improbable one mm. in some senses... Um, and you've got the whole sexual politics thing in there because, of course, you know, you have Leonora um, disguised as a man. How do you actually turn that into into theatre? And it's a long act, and if you don't do that, then you have broken the trust and the relationship you have with the audience. Particularly the use of dialogue. And if the dialogue does not literally connect at the yeah. same emotional level with the, with the numbers, you're sunk. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've heard absolutely. too many productions where the dialogue is kind of to get us from one number to the next, which is not at all what it was and intended to do. It's so difficult to make it live. I think Oscars is taking a sort of somewhat sort of universal look at this. I mean, he, his concept, in as much as he's talked about it, and he's a doer rather than a talker, has been very much that in some sense we are all imprisoned. You know, obviously a great deal of the world still is. But we are generally, as individuals and as citizens, still in prison, you know, how free are we? And that sounds like a giant cliché, but I know it will not be once he's worked that through. And of course, you know, as a youth, he lived through the liberation of Lithuania, so he has some some personal experience. But I think that he will make the piece absolutely timely. He will make it human and he will make, make it universal. And the orchestra is going to be part of the fabric of the production. The way that the set model looks at the moment is that it's prison. I mean, there are bars, but there's a lot of moving parts in that. Um, He probably will use quite a lot of mirror in that, which is something, as a director, um, he is very keen to do, this idea of us seeing our own reflection. But the idea is that the orchestra will be actually be on stage. The set will be very transparent. The orchestra will be on stage um, and clearly visible and will be sort of built into the set, so to speak. The main protagonist. The main <laughs> protagonist, absolutely. And, and he's very also, uh, you know, as we have been talking about, you know, he sees the voices as instruments and the instruments as voices. Mm-hmm. But that the pit will actually be the prison, so that we have a enormous theatrical possibilities. Yeah, yeah with, uh, very exciting. And are you going to interpolate Leonora number three into 
Well, I, it, it's deal. my hope that we get to do it, but without you know, the, the, without the uh, need for set change, uh, which is of course where Mueller originally came up with the idea of of sticking the Leonore Third in between the two scenes of Act Two. Um, I, my argument may be less uh, less well received that we do it. I just think it's since this the overture is basically a, a reiteration of the scene that's just happened. I find it very dramatically compelling it's also one of the greatest overtures ever written you know so so um let's say this is still definitely <laughs> open for discussion i think I'm glad to uh, hear. and the other uh, thing andrew is, has not had a conversation with oscars yet so we um yeah no but the the other th- point it's a great is discussion though yeah well the other point is you know the 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 number just before it the duet ends mm. on, a, on a g and then yeah. the first note of the leonora overture yeah. is a g yeah. leonora overturns triumphantly in c major and the first scene starts triumphantly the next scene it starts triumphantly in c major and what i've done when i've done it in the past and i've done this this piece several times um i've actually cut the last chord of the overture and go straight into the dum which is a little pat otherwise isn't it going from the end of that duet well it's so abrupt it is so abrupt i think i look forward to this discussion is slowly but surely drawing a new audience. It really is. One sees it in London. I'm sure you're seeing it here. Is that a priority here in Bergen to just tempt people in for the first time? Because once they're in, they'll want to come back. That's absolutely the way we plan. I mean, we do a lot of stuff. We do an opera cabaret series and we do what we call pop-up opera, which is sort of, you know, flash mob stuff. I mean, that's one thing. That's not going to build your audience. It builds your... You know the awareness of the company, perhaps, but the way we program, um, we try to do a, an opera every year that perhaps might attract people who don't normally go to the opera. Of course, we want to expand the audience, and I think also this policy of making sure that our opera really is theatre and really is engaging and is topical is a very critical issue if, if we want opera to be relevant to what people are well, doing now. Young people without preconceptions very often are more attracted to the more radical pieces the more, in the repertoire. Think, yes, I would agree. Um, the more sort of theatrically gritty pieces in the repertoire from the 20th century. Um, well, I we mean, just did, you know, again, a Norwegian premiere of um, Tandun's Marco Polo, and we, were, we did that with Nisha Jones, who's a video artist. And certainly in the audience, there were a lot of people who'd come because it was going to be you know, done by a video person. It wasn't, you know, that. Um, so I think we have to look at all of these things. You know, there is an openness, mm-hmm. but we do still, um, even though opera is young in Norway, it's still opera, you know, that feels that word has fenced itself in. So it's a tricky word. Coming back to Fidelio, Andrew, is there a more liberating use of syncopation than that final <laughs> chorus? No. I cannot, I mean, it is just... It's well, you know, anybody who thinks rock and roll started in the 20th century is greatly wrong. Yes, <laughs> greatly delusional. Beethoven was the original rock and roller. Well, maybe even Bach in a way. But um, you know, there's so much fantastic energy and rhythm. And who else but Beethoven could make, you know, going back and forth between C and G? So exciting! It's just it really extraordinary. Is. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's so modern. <laughs> Is 
it's like the final scene makes no sense unless you've experienced the rest of the opera. And all great operas are like that. The final scene of Rosenkavalier doesn't truly make sense unless you've lived through the, the four hours that precede it, or the three hours and a half that precede it. It's, sure, wonderful to listen to on its own, but not remotely as powerful or as cumulative and and as fulfilling and and that's what's so great about it i mean on its own it's almost silly it's so wow we're so happy now um and then but but when you understand how desperately poorly these prisoners have been you know for so long and that they've been imprisoned by this horrible governor of the jail, you know, to be free like that. But there's also, I think there's a, such a fundamental thing in, in all of us, that this triumph of right over might. We all need to feel that that's genuinely mm-hmm. how things are, although we know perfectly well they aren't. And I think possibly that comes back to Oscar's view of the opera, that very, very powerful message that it's what we're all seeking all of the time, but we know really isn't there, that just we have not achieved that and probably never will. Thank you.